This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Father Dominic, for the introduction. It's a great joy to have all of you here, for us to be here for our conference again. It's a new space to be in, but uh, we're very happy to be here with all of you. And let's begin our conference uh, for the weekend with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts, enkindle in us the fire of your divine love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us by the same light that we always may be wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. Mary, Queen of Peace. Saint Joseph. Saint Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, over the course of the next couple of or the two talks I'm going to give you this morning, we're going to take up um, three basic questions about human knowledge. Um, the good news that comes down to us in the perennial philosophical tradition is that there is truth. Human beings can know the truth, and human beings are able to speak or communicate the truth to one another. A great deal of the problems that we're dealing with in our culture and in our society come down to the fact that various positions or philosophies out there deny one or more of these claims in more or less extreme ways. Uh, so it's good news for people to hear that there is truth, we can know it, and we can speak it, because a great deal of the world around us sends the opposite message a lot. The three questions that we're going to take up are about knowledge as such. So the first one is, what is knowledge? The second question is, how do we acquire knowledge? And there's different stories that can be told in, in response to that question. There is causal stories about what causes knowledge, and we can look at knowledge in a, a causal process. But there's also another kind of causal, or another kind of story we can tell about the acquisition of knowledge. Not a causal story, but a story about investigation or inquiry. What are the tasks or strategies we need to take up in order to gain knowledge? So those are, uh, those are the two ways we'll look at the question of how we acquire knowledge. And then, towards the end, we'll take up some of the issues of skepticism. How do you even know anything at all to begin with? How do we know that we even have knowledge? Um, what we're not going to do is place skepticism or the skeptical question on the front of the burner and do our epistemology in response to skepticism. Skepticism doesn't set the agenda. Skepticism is a side issue. Skeptics have to come up with arguments of their own, and we can refute their arguments just like we do any other arguments in philosophical matters. So unlike modern philosophy in its way of proceeding, which is to let skepticism sort of set the agenda, we're going to just set skepticism aside and come back to it later. Okay, so all that being said, we'll take up the question, what is knowledge? 
And if we take up the question without thinking of it in terms of we have to defend ourselves against skepticism, then we're able to go at it in a much more relaxed kind of way and take up the question very much like in, in the way that um, Plato and Aristotle took it up, which was we just want to know for its own sake what knowledge is. It would just be good to know that, just like it would be good to know what all kinds of things are, truth, or beauty, or virtue, or justice. Well, what's knowledge, and how do we get it? Uh, now, one qualification being made is that Plato and Aristotle, I think, did have out of the corner of their eye sophists, and the problems that sophists cause in political society. And philosophy did have, their philosophy did have, I think, um, an intention to deal with sophistry and the various forms of skepticism and relativism that go with it. But uh, they went about it in a different way than modern philosophers do, which is they kind of calm, calmly just went about asking, well, what is knowledge? And how do we, how do we acquire it? Okay. So uh, we'll start at the very beginning, I suppose, where Plato does in a way. Uh, and the, the big distinction that's going to follow us through the whole conversation and all through the history of philosophy is the distinction between sensory knowledge and intellectual knowledge. This is the first big distinction. Now, just to distinguish between the two categories is something that Plato does, the divided line. Um, in the Republic, and Aristotle accepts the distinction. And it sets up for everything else, okay? There's sensory knowledge and intellectual knowledge. Now, regarding both of these types of knowledge, well, let's just qualify this. I'm, by classifying sensory under knowledge, I'm already taking an Aristotelian position. Plato kind of dismisses sensory knowledge. Sensation is, is illusory for him, but it has a role in the knowledge process by triggering various memories. But we'll set that aside and come back to it. We'll just take it up front for now. Sensation is a species of no. And among sensory knowledge, within sensory knowledge, we can distinguish between the act and the eye. There are various sensory activities and there's sensory objects. Now, when I use the language object, I'll admit that I'm importing later Latin scholastic vocabulary. But Plato, the act of sensation is of the sensible. Sensation is of the sensible. And that sensation in general is of the sensible in general, and you can then distinguish between various more specific types of sensing. So there can be touch, or touching is of the tangible. It's really interesting to see how Aristotle phrases these things. Um, he will not say, the object of sight is this, or the object of sight of that, 
therefore Yahweh can touch. And this, I'll just say, touching is of the tangible. Seeing is of the visible. Where the expressions, the tangible and the physical, signify things. So just by phrasing it that way, you're already out. You're, you're, you're sort of not allowing a, a certain picture to come up where there's me, the sensor, then there's this object, the sensation, and then there's this other thing out there on the other side. So he sort of names the, the thing itself as the tangible, the, the visible, the audible, etc. Okay. Well, there's going to be something similar on the intellectual side. There's going to be an act and an up. And the act, as Aristotle describes it, of the intellect, the one that we're going to be interested in the most, noesis, is of knowing up. And in the Latin tradition, it becomes intellectus is of intelligibility. Intellectus is an interesting word because it can signify on the one hand the power of intellect, it can signify on the other the act of intellect, and translators don't struggle with, with translating, you can translate as understanding, intellection, intellecting. Um, how do you translate it? And there's further precisions that we'll draw later between apprehension and understanding. Okay, once you have this basic picture down, the, you can start to see that just as over here, the tangible and the visible are names of things. So likewise, noemata and intelligibilia are names of things, reality. Only it's really, really interesting and tricky because these have properties that are unlike particular things. They're universals. And that starts a whole, that starts off a whole set of questions and problems. But we'll come back. Once you have this picture in mind, this basic story, um, you can start to frame a, a picture, a bigger picture of things. And so what I want to do over the course of um, our time together here in this first session, while still leaving some time for Q&A, is I want to lay out a series of general theses, general theses about knowledge that cover, that, that build off this basic starting point. Okay? And we're going to gradually build up an account of what is knowledge, leading to the three acts of the mind, okay, the three acts of the intellect. But in order to build up the account, you've got to have this picture to start with. And the, the reason it works is, well, we'll just go one thesis at a time and you'll see what happens. So let's do this. Here's gonna, I'm going to give you eight general theses, okay? I'll try to go through them very quickly. Number one, sensory knowledge is not intellectual knowledge and vice versa. 
Sensory knowledge is not intellectual knowledge, and vice versa. Now, that may seem to you and to me, and to people like us, uh, like, duh. But actually, it's a big accomplishment to distinguish between sensory knowledge and higher, a higher order of knowing. And a lot of people down through the history don't do that. And you can say, and people will be like, look, two different people can stand and look at, this, and look at the same tree. They're going to have two different perspectives on the same tree, and they're not going to see the same thing. So it's impossible for any two people to see the same thing or know the same thing. That would be a very simple kind of skeptical argument or sophistic sort of thinking, where you basically take a limitation that we have on our knowing at the sensory level, and you generalize it to all knowledge whatsoever. Because a distinction has not been made between the sensory knowing and intellectual Intellectual knowledge is not subject to that same kind of limitation as physical observers in physical space. But people don't draw the, the distinction, okay? It comes as a surprise to a lot of students who teach epistemology or philosophy of human nature class that there's a distinction between conceiving and imagining. They just because every time we conceive something, we have to imagine, or we have to use a, a sensation or in our imagination. And so we just think conceiving just is imagining. Sensation. Sensation would be uh, imagination, would be internal sensation. So you say, well, can you, cons cons can you imagine a 1,000 sided figure with all 1,000 sides distinctly? No, I can't really do that. But if we were to give you a formula, uh, for determining the area of a 1,000-sided figure with equal sides, give you the, the length of the sides, you'd be able to draw the conclusion and you would know the truth. So you would you'd have some knowledge that's at a higher level than sensation. That comes as a surprise to a lot of people at first. So it's an achievement, an accomplishment, to use the language of Robert Sokolowski, just to draw the distinction between sensory knowledge and intellectual knowledge. There's another way it goes in the history of philosophy. Some people basically have said that what David Hume basically does is just deny the distinction again. So once upon a time, the philosophers drew the distinction between sensory knowledge and intellectual knowledge, but that's just hogwash. All we can do is sense. That, that's, so big things are a state philosophically in that simple thesis. Okay. All right, so the next thesis, number two. Acts, cognitive acts, are specified by their objects in both orders, in the sensory order and in the intellectual order. Acts are specified by their objects in both orders. In other words, what it is to sense is to, to cognize or be aware of the sensible. And if the cognition is not of the sensible as sensible, it's just not sensation. It's something else. And likewise, touching the very essence of the act is that it's of the tangible. If it's not of the tangible, it's not touching. It's something else. 
So the very acts are defined in terms of the objects in reality. So notice what you're doing in your theory of knowledge. You're presupposing up front there's reality. And the, the things in, in reality define the kinds of acts, and the acts are, are what they are, and they're differentiated and defined in terms of reality. If reality weren't there, if these objects weren't given, you wouldn't be having these acts, or these kinds of acts. You'd be doing something very different. You'd be imagining something you know, under an illusion, something like that. So I just want to point that out because you're going to get a very, very, very different methodology in modern, early modern epistemology. So let's just suspend belief in the external world, but we'll keep on using the same words for our acts as if we're naming the same things, the same kinds of acts, as if those acts could be what they were without things to specify differentiate them and make them what they are. That's a big assumption. But you won't realize how big of an assumption it is until you have the second thesis that the acts are specified by their objects. And likewise, it's going to be the same on this side as well. Different sciences, different acts of noesis and the various sciences that follow from it are specified by the knowing minds. What are they of? Chemistry is of one thing. Biology is another, physics is one, mathematics is another. Yeah. So acts are specified by the objects. Just a quick point um, to maybe motivate that a little bit is to just ask yourself what would a working sense of sight, for example, be if it weren't actually detecting visible things? Would it even be working? What would be the difference between a working power of sight and a dysfunctioning power of sight? If it's not that, when it's working, it's of actually visible things. And when it's not working, it's not actually visible things. Okay? So there's just something to think about. Here's the third thesis. Sensory knowledge. Sensory knowledge, so this whole category here, is the source of intellectual knowledge, or I should say one of the primary sources of intellectual knowledge. Sensory knowledge is the source or one of the primary sources of intellectual knowledge. That is precisely the thesis that differentiates Aristotle from Plato. Plato doesn't think that sensory knowledge can be a source, really in any way, for intellectual knowledge. It can be an occasion, it can be a trigger, it can be part of the story in some looser way, but it's not a genuine source. You don't get knowledge from sensation. Whereas for Aristotle, you definitely do get knowledge from sensation. Plato, what Plato's reasons are, we'll come up, we'll, we'll raise a little bit later on. But there's a fourth thesis I want to give you that goes a step further, a huge step further from the thesis that sensory knowledge is a source of intellectual knowledge. It's the thesis that sensory knowledge 
is the model for intellectual knowledge. It's the model for it. How do we understand that? The way we understand it, the way that Aristotle sets things up in the De Anima goes like this. As sensation is to the sensible, so noesis is to noemata, or intellectus is to intelligent beauty. There's an analogy of proportionality from one order to the next, which is really very important on Aristotle's understanding of things because he has, because of his empiricism, meaning, you know, you don't know anything unless it's first in the senses, we could not understand this order at all unless we have something in our sensory experience to compare it. You, it's impossible to understand the invisible, the intangible, or the whatever beyond the empirical. It's impossible to understand anything beyond the empirical without a comparison to something in the empirical order. We're like adapted and proportioned to knowing empirical things. So if it's not empirical, we need a comparison. Without a comparison, no comprehension. That's why the Lord Jesus is always telling parables. He's trying to explain the supernatural kingdom of God. And he knows there's just simply no way we can understand the supernatural kingdom of God. So he says, it's like a mustard seed. It's like a pearl, great price. It's like this or it's like that. He's just giving comparisons. He's giving us analogies so that we can understand and visit. But we need to do something similar. We can do something similar in philosophy. So Aristotle says, gee, I'm looking for something that's comparable to understand the intellectual order of things. Let's use sensation itself. So as, sen as sensation is insensible, so intellectus is the intelligent. Once you have that, or accept that model, there's other ways you can go, I think. But once you once you set that up, set things up that way, now he's in a position to really lay out more um, theses. Because if you can understand some things about sensation and how it works, there will be parallel uh, principles in the order of intellectual knowledge. So let's do that. Here's the thesis number five. Sensation in act is the sensible in act. Sensation in act is the sensible in act. Once you have this, you really understand sort of what Aristotle's after. His idea, I think, is that when you and I are carrying out sensory acts, when we're actually sensing, actually touching, actually seeing things, the act is specified by the object. So what you're doing is you are coming into, how should I put it, contact with these things, but you're coming into contact with them in such a way that the very forms which qualify or modify the things in reality actually qualify and modify you as note or as sensor in this case. So to, to, to taste something or to touch something, to touch the podium, is to be the smooth. 
in sensation. There's no difference between touching the smooth surface and being smooth in sensation. There'll be a difference in the material in which the same form, smooth, is uh, embodied or is, is, is forming. It'll form the podium in one way, and it'll form your sensation in another way, in a manner proper to you and your body. Whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. But to touch and to, to touch is to be the tangible. So if we wanted to put this in contemporary language, we would say this is a direct theory of sensation. As distinct from an indirect theory, you're not coming into contact with sense data, sense imagery, or sensations, which are third things in between you and reality. The sensation is the form of the thing sensed in act. Well, we can draw a conclusion. Sensation in act is the sensible in act. Therefore, understanding in act or intellectus in act is the intelligible in act. And that's the famous thesis of Aristotle's theory of cognition. To, to know the forms of the things themselves is to be the things, the forms of the things themselves. Aristotle does not construe knowledge the way that Plato does, where things come to us, open up, disclose, um, put on a display, and there's like a relationship between the thing and us. It's, it's an identity theory rather than like a relationality sort of theory. That's certainly something that Bernard Lonergan emphasizes a lot. If you go study the, the epistemology of Bernard Lonergan, he emphasizes a lot that for Plato, there's this uh, sense of duality between subject and object, nowhere to know, and there's a disclosure and a dance and a display. Whereas um, for Aristotle, there's just identification. The knower is the knower, and you eliminate kind of any sort of relationality, which which always goes towards duality and dichotomy. Um, now, that's not to say that for Aristotle, there's not a lot of talk about manifestation and other such things. He has that for sure, but it's um, understood against the background of an identity theory of knowledge. To know is to be the thing known. So the next thesis. Number six, sensation per se is infallible. Sensation per se is infallible. Note the qualification per se. Aristotle's not saying our senses never go wrong or they can't go wrong. But sensation per se, that is, when the senses are operating as senses, they detect. Their, op their objects or the sense of them. So when your eyes are seeing, they are detecting color and their proper objects or common objects. When your sense of touch is touching, 
is detecting the tangible. Now, Aristotle's quite well aware people can be get a blow to the head, they can take some nice drugs, they can do other such things, and their sensory life can get out of whack. That, he would say, is per accidents or by chance. There's a chance, like it's by chance, there's an impediment to the proper operation of your sensory powers in this particular case, but the senses per se are invalid. That is, when they're not impeded by chance factors, such as injury, drugs, uh, or other such things, then they detect reality. And what's interesting is you take that position and you can actually understand a lot more deeply in light of this whole picture of nature as a, as a whole. Nature works always or for the most part. Always or for the most part, nature achieve, achieves its ends. And our sensory life is part of our nature and our human nature works always or for the most part. So always or for the most part, we have our senses and our senses work and they pick up on reality. Yeah, once in a while, people take some drugs or they get injured or whatever, and per accidents, their sensory life gets all messed up. But we're not gonna organize our theory of knowledge around that exceptional chance impediment kind of situation. We're gonna organize our theory of knowledge around nature, and nature works always for the most part, and the senses per se aren't found. Okay. Well, what follows? The senses per se are infallible. We have our analogy between the sensory and the intellectual. Therefore, the intellect per se is infallible. So that's the whole of the next thesis. Sensation per se is infallible. Therefore, intellect per se is infallible, or intellectus per se is infallible. So when your intellect and mind are working, and this is what it means to be working, when intellect is working, it is in fact detecting the intelligible forms of things themselves. And it always gets it right at the level of apprehension. Again, this is not to say that um, people can't make any errors. They can make errors in the judgment, but when it comes to getting the quiddities of things, or picking up on the forms of things in themselves, intellect does so by its very nature, per se. That's an amazing thesis. I mean, we should just pause and sit with that. That means it belongs to our very nature to be connected to reality in a way that sets up for knowledge of universal, necessary truths. That's the big question I mean, of, of modern philosophy. Are, are we connected with reality in such a way that we are set up or we carry within us a source that we can then know with universal, necessary truths what reality is. And a great deal of what Hume and Kant have to say, at least on standard interpretations, okay, is 
to be just denials of just that. Denying just that is very important. So this seventh thesis that's, uh, or the sixth thesis that sensation per se is infallible, therefore intellectual per se is infallible, that really is the hard thing. All right, number seven. Sensation is of the particular. Sensation is of the particular. But intellectus is not of the particular. So now what we're going to do is start contrasting sensory knowledge and intellectual knowledge in order to find the proper difference, so to speak, between the two orders. So sensation is of the particular. But intellectual knowledge is of the universal. Intellectual knowledge is of the universal. When I sense a, a cat, you can hear the cat meow, you can pet the cat, maybe smell the cat, it's always this particular cat, or, or maybe in some way you could construe it, this batch of cats. But it's these part, this particular cat or these particular cats. But when we know what a cat is, it's not of this particular cat or that particular cat, it's just of cathood or catness, as they say. Okay. Good. So that's uh, the great difference between the two orders of knowing. And that sets us up, in a way, with Plato's big question. You, Aristotle, say that sensory knowledge is a source of intellectual How in the world could that be the case if all sensory knowledge is of the particular, which is going to be mutable and contingent. But intellectual knowledge, which you somehow get from sensory knowledge, is of the universal. It's immutable and necessary. How, how can we do that? That's the, the big question. We'll come back to it. We'll come back. But um, that will be, that, that's, that's the question that frames our next uh, talk this morning. We're going to go through the abstraction theory, we're going to go through other such things. But if you don't have the background that we just went through to see what Aristotle's trying to do and how kind of Plato's, I think, in figures from haunting the, the, the theory or motivating it in some way, you don't see what Aristotle's up to. He's trying to answer, I think, Plato's challenge. Just how do you get knowledge of universals, necessary truths, out of sensation? It just doesn't seem possible. And the whole abstraction theory is meant to answer that question. And once you have that historical picture, you can allow the abstraction theory to be what it is without pressing it into other service of other ends in epistemology, using it to justify uh, strong theses against skeptics or, or deal with skeptical scenarios or anything like that. I don't think he's really designed for that, but cut out for it, okay? Uh, it's designed to answer a specific question that came up in the history of philosophy at a specific point 
in a dialectic between Plato and Aristotle about the origin of knowledge. Okay? So with all that being said, I'm just going to make one more point. I presume that in a crowd like this, everyone's at least heard of the three acts of the mind. Here's another difference, I guess you could say, this would be number eight, the eighth thesis. Sensation has one act, there's just sensing. But intellectus has three. Apprehension, judgment, and reasoning. Apprehension is the act corresponding to the very basic question you ask, what is it? There's hardly any more basic question a human being can ask. What is it? Apprehension is the act of the mind by which we get, it's the only way to describe it, we get what something is. What's a dog? What's a cat? What's a triangle? What's a circle? We just get these things. It's, a, it's an act that's going on in our mind at such a primordial level, we don't even notice it. And actually, there were, later on, there were skeptics who were skeptical that we could even do this act. Because it's, they're like, wait a second. It's not sensation, so it's not seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, hearing. It's not imagining. It's not remembering. It's just getting. Like getting it. Like getting the point of a joke. Getting what someone means. Like just getting it. Yeah. Well, where is that in my own experience, in my own life? It's not as obvious to us at first, if at all, the very act of getting it. But that's what it is. So application, get, has a loose understanding of what it is. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to I avoid a problem right up front. Many people have criticized um, Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy for being naive about the process of rational inquiry and the hard work it takes to discover deep truths, hard truths, and to build up the sciences over the course of many generations. And they think you Thomists just have this kind of naive theory that we open our eyes, look at the world, or we do a little bit of thinking, and all of a sudden you just have these apprehensions, and you just apprehend the essences of everything right up front. We know exactly what dogs and cats and triangles, everything is. It, it, it's like it, it uh, presents our cognitive life as being too easy and doesn't take seriously the struggles that human beings need to go through in order to understand the world. So I, I, that, that would be a major misinterpretation of the theory, and I want to ward off that misinterpretation up front. So, when we think of simple apprehension, uh, one way to think about it is that it is it's an act along a spectrum, a cognitive activity. So if you have your intellect, the power here, we're going to give you a spectrum of activity. Apprehension can be understood, I think, as first acquisition. First acquisition. Like when you first get what something is, 
when you first get what a giraffe is, when you first get what an elephant is, when you first get what an apple or an orange is. And this first acquisition takes place for most things, for many things in the world, we should say, very early on in our life. We just get all these notions. They come in to our minds from our experience. So our common sense tells us that experience is something to do with it. We're getting these things from experience. But you don't get the whole story of what something is just upon first acquisition of the concept. That's very important. We do not get the whole story of what a thing is just upon first acquisition. There's going to be a process that a person goes through to understand the same form that you first get, to understand more and more deeply, more penetratingly, uh, where you read it or get it even more and more and more. And that process can also be called, confusingly, like understanding. We come to, we grow in our understanding. More and more and more. How do we grow in our understanding? We'll get to that in the next section when we talk about dialectic. Okay, so dialectic is going to be part of the story about how we grow in understanding. We might get to know, yeah, you get a first concept, a first acquisition of circles and squares when you're a little kid in kindergarten. But to this day, I presume, mathematicians and geometers are still trying to understand circles and squares. And they keep developing new understandings. So understanding continues to grow of the form that is first received yeah, by intellect, infallibly, up front, but not completely. There is a, a limit at the other end on understanding. And that would be when you understand the thing so thoroughly, so completely, so totally, that there's literally nothing left to understand. You understand it all. And St. Thomas calls that comprehension. So seeing is one thing, that's apprehension. Seeing further is another understanding or growing understanding. Seeing completely would be another thing still. That would be comprehension. This helps to understand, for example, when Aquinas talks about the beatific vision. We will see, but we will not comprehend. You will have acquired God as a concept, so to speak. But it won't be like an ordinary concept. It'll be forming your mind, and your mind will be data. You will see it, but you won't get it completely. Okay. Um, as it is, yeah, so I want us to have this story. So there's a kind of realistic understanding built into the, their theory of knowledge up front that first we pick up on on the world, and we grow in our understanding of it gradually, both individually and across societies and over time, and uh, we head towards comprehension, okay? Um, when it comes to judgment, we should be thinking in terms of, has to be 
Okay, so judgment, Aquinas describes it as composing and dividing. There's another operation of the mind that we carry out, composing and dividing. And from out of this process of composing and dividing, so for example, earlier I gave you there's knowledge, we divide it. There's sensory knowledge and intellectual knowledge, we divide it. And then we drew a judgment, we made a conclusion, yeah, we drew a judgment, we made a judgment. No sensory act of knowing is an intellectual act of knowing, and vice versa. So we made a judgment. Now, the way to think about the judgments is that they're using term logic, as is me, or S is not. You need to have that context in mind in order to understand many of the things that are said about composing it by. Okay? But the the idea, I think, is that the judgments flow from our apprehensions. So apprehension is sort of the encounter with reality. Judgment flows from it. But the judgments that we make from out of one degree of apprehension will help lead to further degrees of apprehension and, and understanding in ways that we'll describe in the next talk. And then the last act of mind is reasoning, where you put together argumentation. But the argumentation is not as textbooks sometimes make it sound, the argumentation is not nice, perfect, and complete syllogisms, all uh, finished and complete ideal up front. A lot of the reasoning argumentation that drives the process moving from apprehension to comprehension is going to be a certain kind of sloppy sort of reasoning or um, a kind of problematic, problematized kind of thinking that we'll call just simply aphoria, nonce or difficulties that come up, and that will help to drive the process forward. Okay, so these are the three acts of the mind, and what I'm trying to do is give you an account of these three acts of the mind that are a little bit more expansive than what you typically get in standard textbooks that just give you quick definitions of these things. Um, I'm trying to situate it in terms of real life and real life inquiry, um, so that we can get see that the theory is a lot more realistic or true to life than sometimes meets the eye in the textbooks. Okay, so that's uh, where we'll leave the, our discussion off for now. We'll come back to Plato's big question in the next talk, um, and we have a few minutes for Q&A. Great, we'd like to use the microphone for Q&A. Yeah, you can give your applause. <laughs> So the floor is open for questions. Um, thank you for your talk. I had a question about um, knowledge of particulars. Yes. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more. Um, it seems like sometimes uh, we do want to say that we know particulars, and I'm thinking specifically like particular people. Like, uh -huh. I know Cynthia, but I don't just know what she looks like or what she hears, you know, what she sounds like, but also, you know, stuff about her yes. superior life. So, like, uh, how do we um, understand, uh, you know, talk about knowledge of particular people or other particular objects in terms of this? 
Sure, great question, standard question. So the first thing to say is that you have sensations of or, or singular things, but you have more than just immediate current sensations. You also have memory and an experience that sort of builds and develops over time. That's a huge part of the answer to your question. So out of memory of people and the various things, we have knowledge. So a lot of our knowledge of particular things, particular people or singulars, is memory. And that raises a whole other thing. We could have a whole other talk about memory, how memory works, uh, and the intelligibility that's there, um, evaluations and estimations. There's also other powers of the soul we haven't talked a lot about, like the cogitative power, which makes immediate evaluations, estimations, and reactions of singular things. That's also a big part of the story. So memory and uh, estimations or cogitations about particulars are a big part of the story in, in terms of what we know. Now that cogitative kind of thinking, which is of singulars, is going to draw upon a lot of abstract knowledge you have but it's gonna to come together and meet in something called ratio particularis. That's the meeting ground where abstract knowledge meets concrete particulars in ratio particularis. And that's basically, and there's a lot of other things we could talk about, like memory, intuitions, quick estimations, things like that. Um, what Aquinas holds is that individual things do not have their own, individual material things, do not have their own individual essences, so you do not abstract a form of symbiote. That just disturbed a lot of people because they, it kind of sounds like you're telling me I don't know, like, my wife. I remember I had a buddy in grad school, like, you're telling me I don't know my wife. Uh, so, no, you do, you do. Experientially, in the biblical sense, you know. That's experiential. Yeah, I, I just had a question about um, the the spectrum of understanding. So, um, I mean, I you know, I, I'm wondering in what ways this might be skeptical. This, this might be like skeptical to a, a skeptical challenge. But I, 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 I'm not recalling chapter and verse. But I, I think there are points where Saint Thomas says that um, you know we, we we don't or rarely know the, the, the complete uh, essence of the yeah. uh, material. Yes. So um, I mean, you know. Science is mostly history of mistakes. Yeah. So you're th thinking that that heat is caloric, right? Or you know, you're, you're thinking a whale is a fish. So how how how, how, would, how would we defend against a skeptical challenge that says, well, look, uh, we we hardly ever get these essences right, or, or what have you? So how do we say that, that this is knowledge? You're onto a big question. Glad you brought that up. Saint Thomas does say in a number of different places, we do not know the proper differentiation of any quiddity, of any material thing beneath man. He just said that in a number of places. Uh, Joseph Pieper has a long, nice meditation on that in a book called The Silence of St. Thomas. Okay? And he thinks that it's a, it's a point in the Thomistic philosophy of St. Thomas that allows him to see and understand the world as basically a place of mystery. And it's mysterious because of its creative abundance. 
Okay, so there's theological uh, implications for this position that we don't know the quiddities of sensible. It also is just a humble acknowledgement that there are limits of human understanding. And one of the things that skeptics, you get into when you deal with skepticism, you get into strange positions where if you can't know absolutely everything, if you can't comprehend, well then you can't know at all. And it's no, 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 no. There are forms of knowing which are not comprehensive, but they're still knowing their legitimate partial understanding. So we can have partial understandings of many things and arrive at some necessary universal truths about many things, even if we don't comprehend them. Because what happens in practice, according to St. Thomas, is that even though we can't find the proper differentia for various things, there are properties that they have nonetheless, meaning attributes that are peculiar to things of those type, that allow us functionally to explain a lot or work, yet understand a lot of how these things, of their properties. We use one property to account for many of the others um, and to di differentiate one from the other in practice. Um, now, as to why we should not be skeptics about that, I think that listen to the next talk about dialectic, and then we'll come back to that if you want. It might answer something. So, as I understand it, it's in a way of framing skeptical challenges to say there are two cases, but both of them, their appearances are the same. So, for example, in one case, a good case, here I am. Here's my hand, it's right there in front of me, it's actually there. And the other case, bad case, according to that, it's really just mere appearance of a hand, but it's a computer simulation. It sounds like what Aquinas would say in this case is in reality, there are two different sensible objects one in the good case, looking at the hand, and then another in the bad case. Um, but some philosophers think that even if um, you, know, you don't know in one case, you do know in the other case, so you might think that there's the same kind of epistemic justification in both cases. You know, it's something like equally rational or equally reasonable to believe that there's an end there. So I'm just wondering, does Aquinas have some sort of concept of epistemic justification along these lines? Where do you agree? Or? He does not use the, la the language of epistemic justification, obviously, um, but he acknowledges that he has, he's working with categories that aren't typically used. So he has the, the category of opinion versus science. And I think the scenario that you may have in mind would be something like this. You thought you had knowledge, sensory, you had science of sensory things in one case, when in fact you had an opinion. Um, and it was, just turned out to be false because of these other factors that were afflicting you or something like that. And then if you come back and ask the question, well, maybe what it really boils down to is, how do you know when you have science? And how do you know when you have opinion? And Aristotle says, and I think it's in the posterior analytics, maybe somebody knows, but he says, it's very difficult to know when you have science rather than just opinion. So maybe one of the best things human beings can do is we enunciate the things that we think we know scientifically and you put it out there in the dialectical battlefield 
and let all comers come and test it. And if you can answer all oncomers in diastole challenge, then you're in a position to say, I don't. But if you can't answer all diastole oncomers, maybe it is still just opinion. Maybe. This may need to be our last question. Thank you, Father. So I have a clarifying question about my connection as well. So it, it, what you said about it made it sound to me as if someone who is in possession of comprehension yeah. of um, the concept of liberty yeah. would be inerrant in their judgments about that thing. Such that if I, if I comprehend what the thing is, I couldn't go wrong. There's passages where it kind of says something very much like that now. Right, and worry that that's not right. Um, so, and here's a mathematical example, right? I, I think I comprehend what a circle is, right? A circle is a set of points all equidistant from some central point. Okay. That is the complete story about what a circle is. There is nothing you can add to it. Like, that's just like, if you know that definition, because you know everything there is to know about what a circle is. But then I can ask, Really complicated, very difficult judgment questions yeah. about circles yeah. that can take thousands of years to answer, such yes. as can the circle be squared? Sure. That's, a, that's, a, that's a couple thousand years to answer that question. Sure. Um, but it doesn't seem like the person who is in possession of the definition I just gave of a circle, right. but can't tell you whether the circle can be squared, has failed to comprehend what a circle is. It's just Comprehension doesn't lead to, it seems to me, digital. you can comprehend, you can have the, the perfect, complete definition, uh, but just not, that doesn't mean you're going to be, uh, you're going to know all the true judgments about the thing. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think we might have to enter into a discussion about the difference between angelic intuition and a human comprehension. Whereas angels might be able to get all the properties all at once, like in octu, like one act of mind. But we still would have would would still have some, how should I put it, discursive work to do to bring out the properties and how it follows from the definition. Um, Aquinas might concede that because of the limitations of where intellect works with um, we can only think one thing at a time, one property at a time. You, you can't know all, all of it all at once. So comprehension doesn't necessarily mean angelic embrace of all properties all at once. Would be one first thing that comes to mind. Good. But second, I think Aquinas might say, if let, let's, let me just rant up front that that is the true definition, you've comprehended it. Don't know, but we'll just, if that is. Um, still, how uh, shall I put it? You wouldn't necessarily I think Aquinas would say you do have the true answer to all the the true middle term to all the properties in principle. You've got it in principio, like it's there in the definition. It's just got to be brought out. But to, the process of bringing it out is going to require a process of continual rebirth to fan in a way that angels don't have to do. Right. Good. So. Yeah. Let's give our thanks to James.